Hi there. My name, <laughs> my name is Chris, and welcome to my podcast, Sondheim on Adderall. Here's the thing. I don't expect anyone to even listen to this, and um, I'm not going to promote it. And that sounds like a cop-out, right? Um, why even do it? If it's just an uh, audio diary for myself, then why even uh, release it? Similar to what I do with uh, the music that I write and release in quotes um which by the way if you <laughs> haven't heard it is uh, uh compassion fatigue uh hear it now on spotify and apple music or wherever you get your music um i think that it's uh there's a tension between uh me not wanting to be the kind of person that's like hey check out my podcast or come see my band and me also um very much wanting to uh <laughs> do this and to uh, make music. I have a complicated relationship with self-promotion. We'll just leave it at that. Um, but the reason I'm doing this, more or less, is um, I've loved the work of Stephen Sondheim my whole entire life. And when he died about a year and a half ago, um, late 2021, I found that I couldn't listen to any of his work or watch any of his work without sobbing. And uh, this is something that sort of happened in my mid to late 30s. Uh, I was never somebody that cried during works of art. Usually just cried selfishly for reasons of sadness. Um, but uh, lately, I'll cry in a movie. Inside Out by Pixar is a, a notable example of this. But I, after Sondheim died, I, I did a little rewatch of some things. Uh, Act 1 finale of Sunday in the Park with George. Uh, lost it. Also, on my birthday, I, uh, my, I I subjected my girlfriend to watching the Into the Woods, not the Disney movie with the people, but the 80s filmed stage version, and cried at like weird spots in it. Um, moments in the woods, I think I, for some reason, could not hold back tears during that song, and... Um, and not because of what happens after that song. I don't know why. Um, so um, what also coincided with the death of Sondheim and the sort of Sondheim rewatch that I got into was um, I got a prescription for Adderall. Uh, just like a couple months later, I have a lifelong battle with uh, ADHD. Uh, I was medicated as a child and then stopped being medicated when I got sober. I've been sober 15 years. My sobriety date is October 1st, 2007. So getting back on Adderall was not something I took lightly. I well, walked through it with my sponsor. I did some research. Didn't necessarily trust the Kaiser psychiatrist who was a little too gung-ho to get me on these uppers, but um, I more or less feel good about it now. Uh, going swimmingly. Took it because I'm back in school um, 20 years late, trying to finish an undergraduate degree, and uh, a lot of English literature that I am thought it might help me to uh, focus in on and be less, uh, do less circling back while reading. What I'm finding, however, to my disappointment, is the same thing that I found in high school, which is this drug will make you focus on whatever it is you feel like focusing on and not the thing you are necessarily supposed to be focusing on. 
Um, so if I'm supposed to read Plato's Republic, um, I don't think there's any dosage of Adderall that's necessarily going to make me focus in on that sufficiently. Um, however, if I find myself listening to the original cast recording of Merrily We Roll Along, and uh, or something of that nature, uh, I'm going to go pretty hard focusing in on that. So, um, since the career of Sondheim and the music of Sondheim is something I feel like very fluent in, um, I've loved it my entire life, like I said, uh, and since I didn't want to further subject my poor girlfriend to more sort of blatherings about Sondheim musicals, which she may or may not give a shit about, I thought, um, I would sort of use a, uh, condenser microphone here and a laptop as a sort of release valve for this shit. And, um, I don't think I have anything new to say about any of this. A lot of it's just sort of regurgitated. I do have my own sort of thoughts and impressions about Sondheim musicals and I'm kind of just going to get them out here. And again, not promoting this. Uh, maybe that's a cop-out. Maybe it's a defense mechanism. But uh, I think this is what we're going to do here. Um, and I'm going to go uh, sort of show by show. Um, which, you know, if you're not familiar with Adderall XR, uh, it tends to make you talk nonstop. Um and uh, I feel like talking about musicals, and I don't have any friends to talk to them about. And I think that that's... The thing is, I, I don't want to offend anybody, but again, who's really listening. I, I don't love musical theater people as much as I love musical theater um, as a subculture or as a crowd. Um, I've just sort of never fit in with them and or honestly any crowd and i'm not trying to say that like i'm a fucking maverick <laughs> uh and an, i'm a snowflake individual I, it's it's the you know i've had these crowds the musical theater people the sort of indie alternative folk people um i even played with a michael jackson tribute band in the late 2000s and i those were people I didn't feel like I fit in with either. Um, I just, and I realized like, I may not, I've been, I've been doing musical theater since I was a kid and I may not even like it. I may just like Sondheim musicals uh, because there are not that many non-Sondheim musicals that I do like. And I think I like my musicals pretty, I wouldn't say dark, but um I don't like the musicals that people like, and I think that uh, sometimes this can come off as snobbery, and it probably is. So, you know, go fuck yourself. <laughs> I realized this actually recently because I work at an um, old Italian restaurant as a singing waiter in Los Angeles. I'll let you decide what restaurant that is. Um, it's kind of a niche thing. There's not too many of those around, but I work at a Old Italian restaurant is a singing waiter. A lot of theater people working there. And I had a conversation with a couple of my coworkers about Pippin. Uh, I love Pippin. It's one of the few non-Sondheim shows I love. Uh, and one of the things I love most about Pippin is the ending of Pippin. Um, the ending of Pippin is so uncomfortable and intense and 
amazing to me. Uh, it's it's like my favorite thing ever. I mean, it's a it's a fucking musical with Bob Fosse dancing that ends with the lead character contemplating suicide and the ensemble goading him to do it, which is something. Um, <laughs> that's uh, it's not something you see every day. And I was talking to my coworkers about it, and they were saying, "Yeah, I like Pippin, but I don't like the ending. Um, I think that he should have." seen the good in his new choice and not have uh, seen it as being trapped. I think he should have seen the value in that woman and her child. As much as I like those people on a personal level, could not disagree more. And um, that's sort of across the board with all the things I like. I, I, I like sad things. Not just like sad things that are sad for the sake of being sad, but uh, I, tragedy. I don't know. It, 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 tragedy has kind of gone away as a genre. It's just like comedy and drama. Um, another sort of source of embarrassment for me, just because a lot of people roll their eyes, is my, my favorite movie has always been um, Magnolia. And my favorite TV show, at least in the last few years, has been uh, Horace and Pete, um, which not a lot of people have seen. Um, it's the most horrendously sad work of art I've ever seen. It affected me for days and days, and it's by Louis C.K., so if you uh, have written off the Louis C.K., um, you know, no judgment. Uh, that's a perfectly reasonable decision to make. Uh, I found that I couldn't because I had seen Horace and Pete, and it meant so much to me. So, um, yeah, one thing. Um, so I, I think... As, while I'm doing this, again, mostly for myself, I'm going to be using a couple of different books here. Um, the number one book is just a, a little coffee table book that I picked up from the library as a kid or as a middle school aged person uh, called Sondheim and Company by Craig Zayden, which is a book that I read over and over and over again. It was really hard to find. I finally, I found it. I, I didn't keep that copy that I ended up owning as a kid uh, and I bought a copy of it it was hard to track down but uh what's so cool about it is it's sort of a uh behind the scenes look at how these shows were made and the rehearsal process and the their life on broadway the reviews stuff like that um and i just ate that shit up when i was a kid and an aspiring um theater kid i just was so into that so the other book is, of course, or series of books, is the Finishing the Hat, Look, I Made a Hat uh, thing that Sondheim made um, about 10 years ago. It's the sort of catalog of all of his lyrics, but he also talks about the craft of mostly lyric writing, but pretty mind-blowing, um, kind of on the same level, and came to me at the same sort of appropriate time in my life when I was more interested in writing, um, whereas performing was what I was into reading the first book. So anyway, um, what I really like about Finishing the Hat, especially in the opening where he talks about sort of the state of uh, musical theater, he says, uh, and I quote, Broadway theater, formerly the fount of new American plays, has for many years been focused predominantly on musicals, chiefly two kinds, stolid, solemn uplift equipped with impressive lumbering spectacle, like Phantom of the Opera and shit like that, 
Um, elaborate concerts of familiar pop songs threaded along a storyline, a genre familiarly known as the jukebox musical, which the critic Stephen Holden has characterized as karaoke hell. And we all know what those are. Uh, Mamma Mia. Um, I myself was an American idiot a few years back. Um, you know, no comment on that. Um, and then he says, as I write this, a third kind has recently overrun the theater like kudzu. The self-referential meta-musical, which makes fun of its betters by initiating their cliches while drawing attention to what it's doing, thus justifying its lack of originality without the risk of criticism. Spicy, Stephen Sondheim. And I think probably the best example of that, even though it wasn't on stage, is La La Land, which to me is the worst movie ever made. I'm not trying to be a contrarian, uh, beardy, uh, flannel-wearing guy when I say that. Um... I, I, I radically despise La La Land for a lot of reasons, um, mostly as a person who loves musicals and a person who loves Los Angeles. But that's 100% what that fucking movie is doing. Um, so yeah, um, when it comes to non-Santai musicals, like I said, there's very few to choose from that I like. I, I, I enjoy Pippin. I like the work of Jason Robert Brown, generally. I uh, haven't really kept up with it since... The stuff that came out when I was younger. I do like Next to Normal. I really liked Avenue Q. And I was in a regional production of Avenue Q. Um, but the thing about Avenue Q is like there's really nothing to add to it. Like the only reason to put it on or to, you know, see it is if you've never seen it before. Um, and I just, I mean like as an actor. Like it's all sort of there in the writing. And um, you can't really make any new choices playing those parts in Avenue Q. Also, I have like a sentimental fondness for shit like Les Mis and Miss Saigon, uh, even though I acknowledge they're pretty bad. But in, in high school, I kind of just, all musicals were just fodder, just something to sing. And I got really into those just because, uh, you know, ah, fuck it. There's something fun about them, I guess, you know, it's, uh, even though they're, the ones from the 80s that are like long dirges for hours and hours. Like I, 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 there was a time in my life I liked those. So yeah, um, those are the two books I'm going to be using. Let me talk about my own personal Sondheim journey. Uh, meaning just like how I got into this, all this stuff and in what order. My father was a theater critic when I was growing up. He was a lawyer by day, theater critic by night. So I had the great privilege of getting to go with him to see shows um one of them which i think he saw with my sister and then just said everyone else the rest of the family has to see this and brought my mother and my other sister and myself to see into the woods at the actors co-op theater in hollywood uh, just a little 99 seat production and that really sort of uh activated me in a way um just and and i think to this day intimate 99 seat really good musicals are the best thing to me i'm less interested in the the big time stuff uh just because when it's when it's good it's really good and when it's bad it's really bad so it's uh you're really rolling the dice um after that the film of west side story and um that's the show i'm going to be talking about on today's episode um i saw that and just got really into it so more on that later and then after that i think i just sort of at the library um my parents were or my mother was a uh 
sort of book fanatic and wanted us to be reading all the time. And I stumbled across one of these Sondheim books and then just sort of got addicted to them. Um, this one had a lot. The first one I saw, God damn it, what is it called? Hang on a second. Okay, found it. It's just called Sondheim um, by Martin Gottfried. And there's a picture of Bernadette Peters on the cover at her little perfume table from Sunday in the Park with George. Um, it's like a big oversized coffee book type thing. And so I found that, I think, at the Glendale Library and brought it home and was initially just really into looking at the pictures and full disclosure, um, may or may not have been aroused by some of the pictures, um, like Mary from Merrily We Roll Along. Um, that's weird, right? Look, it's the truth, sorry. Um, she's a very talented young woman with a lot more to offer than just her uh, physical beauty. But uh, I was 13 and that's uh, that was the situation. Then um, went to the Brand Library, which if you're not familiar, it's an amazing music library uh, here in Los Angeles, actually also in Glendale. Did not grow up in Glendale, uh, just happened to go to those two libraries. They got a good library system there. Um, then at some point I saw production of Company at the West Coast Ensemble with my dad and that blew my goddamn mind uh, so good uh, then the same theater company did Merrily We Roll Along uh, my sophomore year of high school and Merrily We Roll Along I'll just say this up front is my favorite musical um, of all time starting with that production um, starring co-starring um, my dear friend Richard Israel who uh, directed me in the aforementioned Avenue Q and uh, I still uh, see from time to time uh, to this day he's probably the best director I've ever worked with and one of the most amazing human beings of all time um, so when it comes to the appreciation of Sondheim there's this sort of pervasive idea that you can't hum the tunes uh, and go fuck yourself you know uh, that's stupid it's a stupid thing to say people should stop saying it uh, to quote Sondheim himself in the Craig Zaden book, um, anything is hummable. Obviously, if it can be sung, it can be hummed. When people say it's not melodic, not hummable, it makes my blood boil. It's really a question of how many times you hear it. People have lazy ears. Yeah, take that, people. You have lazy ears. Um, and the reason these Sondheim books are so good, I think, is just he, he, he loves teaching. And uh, he... He's thirsty to teach, like he never had kids, and there's a lot of this in his work, especially his later work, like he's really into teaching people. He says, I think in Finishing the Hat, he says teaching is a sacred profession, and it makes sense because the, he he's so successful at defining what makes good musical theater writing, and it makes you not only appreciate him, but just hate the audacity of people who are bad at it like the La La Land motherfuckers, or the people that just think like, hey, we should write a musical, it'll be funny. Um, Sondheim has this set of rules that I, I think they seem kind of stifling, but also are they, they, they just make sense, and a lot of them make sense intuitively if you actually incorporate them. Um, he talks a lot in Finishing the Hat about how poetry doesn't need music, but lyrics do need music, uh, and that lyric... Right, uh, lyricists are invisible. Like, uh, if you're writing for character, like you should not be aware of the lyricist. Um, and that lyrics are about balance, and poetry is about compression. And uh, he's really not a fan of like misstressing syllables. 
He is a fanatic about true rhymes. He says a near rhyme is a false rhyme. And that uh, craft should serve the feeling. Um, yeah, and I think if you hang out with a lot of musical theater people, some of them will say uh, Sondheim is bad because it's hard to sing. Uh, again, go fuck yourself. Uh, just learn your shit. Because <laughs> it's worth it in the long run. Like, it's not just tricky for the sake of being tricky. And if Sondheim to you sounds like uh, nails on a chalkboard or a cat running across a piano, which I heard somebody say while we were doing Assassins and I wanted to murder them, um, it's either because you're doing it wrong, your accompanist is doing it wrong, or you have shit in your rears because it's it's all there's 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 a reason for the trickiness of it anyway jesus christ let's talk about this week's show west side story so um you don't need me to tell you that west side story is amazing uh west side story is obviously amazing um i first saw it uh via the movie <laughs> that's a dumb way of saying that i first saw the movie that was my first exposure to it i was in sixth grade i think i watched the movie and i fell deeply in love with it um specifically riff and the jets um i thought they were so fucking cool and i wanted to be them so badly minus the um xenophobia and all that um <laughs> Uh, Russ Tamblin as Riff is, uh, like a miraculous performance to me. And it could just be because I'm too close to it. Like I could, it's quite possible that if I saw it for the first time today or somebody seeing it for the first time today would think that it's corny as shit. And it might be, but, um, yeah, I made a plan to, uh, direct <laughs> my own, uh, production of West Side Story when I was 12 years old. I shopped around to different parks like auditoriums and parks i was going to stage it at the sherman oaks park near my house until i found out about paying royalties that uh and i believe at the time 1996 i would have had to shell out like 400 dollars to buy the rights to west side story because they make you get the package where you also like get like the sheet music for the violin and the oboe and everybody can't just use a karaoke track like it's all you, you're required to pay all that and my parents said, yeah, we're not going to pay $400 for some uh, pipe dream of yours that you're probably not going to follow through on. Fair enough. Um, it would have been cute, but it would have been, uh, you know, bad. Also, like, who would have... Anyway, who cares? Um, I still have a mark on my calf, my right calf, from accidentally stabbing myself with a pencil while I was acting out the rumble from West Side Story in my bedroom. That's how committed I am to the musical West Side Story. Uh, this musical fires on all cylinders, right? Like it's, um, and this is not new information. It's it's sort of peak music, peak lyrics, peak choreography, and then uh, also most importantly, peak book writing. And uh, that's something that we'll get into later. Arthur Lawrence's book uh, of West Side Story is arguably the best book written for uh, a musical and uh similarly similar to lyric writing i think book writers kind of have to be invisible uh 
and just the economy of words and, and of scenes in West Side Story um, and the way that it serves the songs and the dancing is just so smart if you really pay attention to it. Um, so in the Craig Zayden book, they talk about the process of them teaming up and writing this thing. And it is insane that Sondheim was 27 years old and his first big gig on Broadway is writing with Leonard Bernstein and working with Jerome Robbins and producing this thing this um, that kind of changes the whole paradigm of everything. Maybe not at the time. Like maybe everybody that saw it at the time was too fucking stupid to get it. But I think now it's enduring power is a testament to how seismic it was. The funny thing to me, um, and this is every Sondheim biography and every Sondheim interview, this comes up um, where he talks about how he didn't want to do it because he didn't want to be pigeonholed as a lyricist because he wanted to be a composer. And the fact that he starts out with West Side Story and Gypsy only writing lyrics, it kind of does pigeonhole him. And uh, everybody to this day, dumb people, if you ask me, say like, hey, he's a good lyricist, but his music's not that good. He can't hum the tune. Shut up. And even Leonard Bernstein, when he auditions uh, for him, when Sondheim comes in and meets with him, Bernstein says, oh, the words are great. The, the music could be anybody's music, uh, but the words uh, are so good. And what Sondheim points out, which is so true, is that like being a good composer or being a good lyricist is not the point necessarily. It's about the way that the words sit on the music. So when people say, oh, which do you write first? The words or the music? Um, or, yeah, words are good, but the music is less good. Like, the, the, the point is integrating the two. Like, you could be a quote-unquote good lyricist, but if you have, if you're just, like, writing good lyrics and waiting for someone to musicalize them, if they musicalize them wrong, then the whole thing is going to suck. And vice versa. Um, interestingly, Sondheim said he didn't want to do it because he said he's never been poor and he's never even known a Puerto Rican. <laughs> Which is, uh, you know, sort of our concepts about um, representation and race nowadays. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's a good point. But um, I think what happened was there was a universality to the story they were telling that really shone through. And um, full disclosure, I'm a cis-het white man, so it's not my argument to make whether this show is does justice to the Puerto Rican experience. And a little more on that later, by the way, uh, here in this echo chamber of me talking to myself, the cis-het uh, cis white man. But um, from where I'm sitting, I'll put it this way, and there's people have challenged this, and I'll, I'll even quote someone that's challenged this. Uh, the, the, from where I'm sitting, it seems like a, they handle the Puerto Rican portrayals with like a lot of care and affection. It's for 1957, you know, and um, I think all liberal attempts to write something uh, progressive and liberal end up being seen by later generations as like hopelessly out of touch and antiquated. Uh, do yourself a favor and never see the movie Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. 
um, and don't read the book on Uncle Tom's Cabin. Those are two pretty good examples of that. Like the, like the people that made those thought that they were being really fucking woke and progressive. And as pure as the intentions may be, you end up sounding like a real asshole later on. Uh, and West Side Story does kind of uh, avoid that for the most part. More on that later. So um, Jerome Robbins, uh, his choreography. I'm not a dance person. I'm a double threat. And uh, I cannot dance. I'm also six foot five and 260 pounds, which doesn't mean you necessarily can't dance, but um, maybe discouraged me from getting real into it. And I tend to favor musicals that don't have dancing in them because I like to imagine myself in them and imagine that I can one day audition for them. Uh, my West Side Story days have passed me by unless I want to play Lieutenant Shrank. And where's how's that even fun? Uh, the dancing in this is obviously amazing. Uh, Jerome Robbins apparently emotionally abused everybody <laughs> while he was directing it uh, and choreographing it which you don't need to do to be a good artist you don't need to be emotionally abusive but a lot of good artists are a lot of great artists uh, are assholes um, it is not a barrier to entry not being an asshole but Jerome Robbins and Bob Dylan and a lot of people are like we're assholes. And I may be an asshole. So, you know, Jerome Robbins was an asshole. I feel like Sondheim wasn't an asshole. Seems like maybe he could have been from time to time. Really only getting his side of the story. Um, but he seems pretty nice. Even though he seems like moody in that company documentary of making the original cast recording. Like he seems like a pretentious moody guy in a black turtleneck with a cigarette. Um, another thing that sort of endures in West Side Story, I'm all over the place here, is the fake slang that they came up with. And that was really smart. Um, and we could have Arthur Lawrence again to thank for that. Came up with weird fake slang words. Uh, he wove them in with the real ones like cool and daddy-o. And I think like dad, I just watched this you know movie in preparation of this. And I think daddy-o is like the one slang term that they use that you go like ha dumb you sound dumb and old the rest of it uh because they weren't slang like terms that anyone actually ever used like rigatigatum cracko jacko <laughs> womb to tomb like uh it all holds up because it's uh it's like its own world um full disclosure so when i watched this movie ever since i was a kid or when I was a kid and I used to watch West Side Story, I used to fast forward the love songs because I didn't give a shit about them. And um, I felt slightly ashamed of that when I got a little older. Um, now I'm less ashamed of that. And I think that there's a few reasons for that. I mean, first of all, because Natalie Wood and Richard Boehmer are not actually singing. They're mouthing to uh, Marnie Nixon and... I don't know the name of the guy who sang for Tony. But um, also um, because a lot of those love songs contain what Sondheim himself calls bloodless lyrics. Um, to use one hand, one heart as an example. Or uh, the line, tonight there will be no morning star. Or today the world was just an address. This is And these are her, his, uh, he points these out, not me. Like he, he does not like those lines and he cringes when he hears them. And he fucking wrote them, so... I guess Bernstein like wanted him to write more poetic, less conversational lyrics. And he said, okay, Lenny, you're the maestro. And uh, 
the story that he tells over and over and over and over again, like in every Sondheim book, and I think in that HBO uh, Six by Sondheim, check it out if you get a chance. It's a it's a nice watch. Uh, is that uh, I feel pretty? Like how how much he hates the work that he did in I Feel Pretty. He was trying to show, hey, look at me with all my uh, thinky smart internal rhymes, and then his buddy Sheldon Harnick, lyricist for Fiddler on the Roof, he heard it. And he was like, yeah, so this is. That, that these lyrics are great, Steve, but this is supposed to be like a Puerto Rican girl that's like just got here and she's singing like Cole Porter. I feel pretty and witty and gay and I pity any girl who isn't me today. That's the movie version because they changed it to the daytime. The original is pretty and witty and bright. Any girl who isn't me tonight. Um, So he hates that song because he was uh, not writing to character. Um, which... Uh, Interestingly enough, like he he's he loves Cole Porter in this finishing the hat book and like sucks him off in every uh every time he comes up. Um Cole Porter to me, honestly, uh is was a bit of a blind spot until recently because I directed a children's production of Anything Goes. And uh I get that it was pre-Golden Age and so they didn't know yet to make the songs move the story forward. But talk about not writing to character. Like that musical is so frustrating to sit through because everything stops when it's time to do a song and dance number and you know the, the like the lead character just who's just some hey i'm just a guy i work on the his assistant on wall street how's it going i'm billy and then he's like at words poetic i'm quite pathetic but you know it's it's uh it's it gives you a whiplash anyway that's not about this um so um, Arthur Lawrence did an interview around the time and of the opening of West Side Story, and I really liked this, so I'm going to share it. And it, uh, they quote this in the Craig Zayden book. Arthur Lawrence says, um, We all knew what we did not want. Neither formal nor flat reportage, neither opera nor split-level musical comedy, neither zippered-in ballets nor characterless dance routines. We didn't want newsreel acting, blue jean costumes, or garbage can scenery any more than we wanted soapbox pounding for our theme of young love destroyed by a violent world. What we did was to aim at a lyrically and theatrically sharpened illusion of reality. Goddamn right. Um, mission accomplished, Arthur. And I think especially the soapbox pounding, I think that's what makes this so good, is that there is no soapbox pounding. Boy, there is in the new movie, though. And spoiler alert, I'm going to have a whole segment here on the new movie. Um, I think it sucks. But also, I love it. I'm of two minds about the Spielberg remake of West Side Story. More on that later. I'm saying that a lot. I should have organized these notes better. Uh, what uh, Sondheim says about the show is he says, West Side Story is about the theater. It's not about people. It's a way to tell a story. And he says that the characters are necessarily one-dimensional. It's about it's a melodrama. And that's true. And that's what's so great about the book is that um, they don't spend a lot of time with backstory and character development. And because they shouldn't. Because that's not what it's about. And it's kind of like... In a way, it's similar to not only Sunday in the Park with George, but... The painting upon which Sunday in the Park with George is based, Sunday Afternoon on the Island of La Grange by George Surratt, where um, it's criticized as being sort of uh, bloodless, uh, to use Sondheim's word. It has no life. It has no 
presence, no passion, no life. And, um, cause it's not the fucking point. <laughs> like the point is, I don't know what the point is, but this is, I think that it's, um, you could make a similar argument in favor of Hamilton and Hamilton does not need to be defended by anybody. And for all of my, um, contrarian, annoying, beardy flannelness, I love Hamilton and I'm, I, I will not, uh, uh, apologize for loving Hamilton. I mean, Hamilton is obviously great. It's the best musical of the post-Sondheim era, which is a long time. What's it, like 30 years? It's the best musical of the past 30 fucking years, um, if not longer. And um, because I think it's about storytelling, the point of Hamilton is not the characters in it. It's about, it's announcing a new way of telling a story um, with the rap and whatnot. And uh, I just wish that he would make another one. Like, I don't even care what it's about or or anything. I wish he'd just make another rap musical and put it on Broadway and not put it on Disney fucking plus and not make it for children. I was so surprised that Hamilton like hit with kids the way that it did because it doesn't seem like it's geared at kids. So maybe I'm less uh, erudite than I think I am. Because I thought Hamilton was <laughs> for the high-minded NPR crowd. <sighs> um, the thing is, like, uh, I listen to a lot of leftist podcasts. Um, full of Bernie bros, for lack of a better word, um, term. Um, don't use that term. It's a stupid term, said the Bernie bro. But... Um, a lot of them have this like knee-jerk resentment for Hamilton because they think, because of how annoying Lin-Manuel Miranda's public persona is and how he's like a hobnobber with the Clintons and the Obamas, like they think that it's this neoliberal apologia for Hamilton. And it's not, if you actually see it or listen to it, it's Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton is quite clearly presented as an anti-hero. Um, I mean, maybe in the closing number they do sort of, hold him up a bit but that annoys me i think um when people try to be super smart and leftist uh by saying you know hamilton was actually a bad guy because he made the bad stuff on wall street happen it's like yeah you're you're right and it's a great musical so you also can go fuck yourself a lot of people can go fuck themselves is west side story canceled or should it be I, I mean, I, no, <laughs> I don't think so. Not my, not my argument to make. I think that what saves it from the aforementioned, uh, poorly aging liberal soapboxing of guess who's coming to dinner, uncle Tom's cabin crash, the movie crash, the, the 2005 one, uh, is that it's just a, like a simple story with basic morality and they don't spend a lot of time harping on conventional wisdom or politically correct platitudes um, because those things change every two to five years. The new movie does. And I think that's why that's what kind of sucks about it. And that's why it won't age well. So um, I don't know. Do I want to go song by song through this? Um, I mean, I got nowhere to be. <laughs> the prologue is great especially in the movie. I want to talk more about the movie. I mean, I think the movie is most people's entry point into this. 
So, I mean, just talking about it on the merits of the music itself and how it was conceived on Broadway, um, I think the music definitely elevates it above anything else that may have been happening on Broadway up until that point. You know, it, I it's I, I know it's cool to hate on Rodgers and Hammerstein, and a lot of that's worth hating on. Uh, talk about Don't Hold Up. Uh, nobody should really do Carousel ever again. Um, but... Um, there's a complexity, I think, to the score of West Side Story that puts it a cut above everything else. Uh, the Jet song, I love the Jet song. I'm, I mean, all I'm going to end up doing here is saying, I love this, I love that, I love this, I love that. That's not interesting. <sighs> Fuck. Um, Something's Coming is a great song that gets ruined in the new movie just because it's such a snapshot of youthful longing. Um, listen, I'm not going to go song by song like I just said I was because, again, all I'm going to say is this is great, this is great, this is great. Are there any songs that are not great? Like I said, I skipped the love songs, but that's just because, again, in the movie, they're not actually singing and the lyrics may or may not be bloodless, but they're pretty. I mean, you can't deny that the music to somewhere is pretty. Of course, that contradicts my whole thing I said about lyrics sitting on music. I think that those could exist just as pieces of music somewhere. One hand, one heart, tonight. Um, I think those are standalone. I mean, the song Cool is not a very good song. I think if I had to like pick one song to remove from the canon, you get take Cool out of there just because it's so, it's a little cornball. Take it slow, but not like a yo-yo schoolboy. Just play it cool, boy. My number one favorite song in West Side Story, and um, one of my favorite songs of all time, for sure, is G Officer Krepke. Because, um, I mean, my God, G Officer Krepke. What can I even say about it? Like, G Officer Krepke, and some, where's that quote? Let me find that fucking quote about G Officer Krepke. Here it is. So, uh, John McClane, McClane, uh, in the journal American, he said that uh, G. Officer Krupke is a plaint which should settle the problem of juvenile delinquency forever. Right? Why didn't it? That was uh, 1957, and um, boy, oh boy, I mean, it really holds up. <laughs> I don't know if anybody heard the. Um, or has, has uh, had the pleasure of hearing a little CD release from the early 90s called The Songs of West Side Story. That's, uh, that's a lot of fun. It's, what they did was they, uh, they, they did like uh, pop, cool pop versions of all the songs. Jeff Krepke, they, 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 they brought in Salt and Peppa and uh, Lisa Left Eye Lopez. And for some reason, the Jerky Boys uh, pop in on that song. Uh, and they started off with like, uh, I, I don't know who it is, but it's a uh, music by Bernstein lyrics by Sondheim. I'm talking about West side story. It's before my time. Um, you're welcome for spitting those rhymes for you. So G officer Krepke is a song about the people that elite society would rather throw away than deal with. And, um, these people change, uh, throughout history um 
the racial makeup and the socioeconomic makeup changes. At one point, it was these, uh, to quote Lieutenant Shrank, the tin horn immigrant scum uh, that uh, were the parents of the Jets. And um, I, it makes me emotional now, that song, like in a way that I was just sort of delighted by it. And just sort of the uh, the crep you at the end of it is just like, yeah, motherfucker, mother crepper. Am I right? Um, but now when I hear it, I get emotional. And um, my girlfriend, Shailene, uh, works in the dependency courts. And she says, yeah, they should play this song in the dependency courts. Um, I don't know what that would even be like. You can't play a song in the dependency courts. Um, yeah, I mean, the last verse of that, after all the fun and games, like, hey, you pretend to be the judge. You, you pretend to be the whatever the psychiatrist the social worker when they get to the uh the trouble is he's lazy the trouble is he drinks the trouble is he's crazy the trouble is he stinks the trouble is he's growing the trouble is he's grown Krupke, we've got troubles of our own it really sends a chill down my spine i guess it always has but now it, it that's the part weirdly enough that makes me choke up um in the show and um chris why don't you choke up at the treatment of the puerto rican immigrants um I do. Um, I the the whole thing is makes me choke up. Um, but there's something about that song uh, about uh, and maybe it's just sort of about tough love in general, um, how it's expressed culturally and how it's expressed on a family level, and just the fact that these kids are on the street with each other and why they're on the street with each other, and the cycle of. Uh, their relationship with the state and the police. Uh, God, shut the fuck up. This podcast sucks. Anyway, you don't need me to explain this to you. I don't need to mansplain. You don't have to subscribe to anybody. Everybody gets it, Chris. Uh, suffice to say, it's really good. <laughs> so, um, real quickly, before we talk about the movie, and by we, I mean me, by myself, um, I want to talk about objections to whether or not West Side Story holds up. And I did look it up because I it, it occurred to me when I saw the new one and then it made me revisit the old one. I was like, wow, like even though it's horrifically cringy that we got a Greek guy playing Bernardo and we got a white girl playing Maria. Um, also, side note, real quick, <laughs> you know when you watch something on Amazon Prime and you pause it, you get the uh, little headshots of the people in it for some reason, um, or the people in the scene that you paused it on? I paused it in the I Feel Pretty uh, bridal shop scene, and one of the shark girls, uh, the actress's name was uh, Nuboku Miyamoto. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, uh, ugh. and then once you know that, you can't not see it in that song. They're like, oh yeah, that, that one shark is uh, an Asian girl. And it's just, uh, yeah, you know, she's ethnic, more or less. Put her in there. So that's that's obviously not great and a sign of the times, and it doesn't excuse it. For me, it seems like for 1961, it's such a good faith portrayal of that those immigrant culture in Manhattan, the Puerto Rican experience. And really the only reason to remake West Side Story would be to sort of deepen the Puerto Rican experience. So why the fuck did Steven Spielberg and Tony Kushner task themselves with doing that? That's what's most annoying to me about the new movie. I did find an article uh, by the 
you know, the uh, Puerto Rican author, um, Karina de Valle Skorsky. Probably pronouncing that wrong because I'm a fucking white male colonizer. And, um, you know, there was a controversy when the show came out that he had a line about tropic diseases in there in the song America, the first version, which has been changed. Uh, changed for the better, I think, in the movie, but also changed for that reason. Because at the time, even at the time then, like there there was no sign of tropical diseases in Puerto Rico. So it was a dumb, ignorant thing to say, I guess. Um but so what uh, Skorsky says is, uh, and th- th- this was the part of her argument that sort of made the most sense to me. She said, uh, I've always been baffled by how the musical's creators squandered the opportunity to engage the genius of Afro-Caribbean polyrhythms. The gym scene mambo is not rhythmically a mambo. And the famous rooftop number, America, has the sharks dancing a Spanish from Spain Paso Doble mishmashed with whitewashed showbiz jazz. Fair enough, right? Um, I mean, that's, you, you can't really argue with that because that's true. And um, polyrhythms, especially, I mean, yeah, that's, they are genius. I mean, somebody explained polyrhythms to me at some point and I felt like, okay, well, then I should just stop trying to be a musician because that's insane. That's a three inside of a four. I mean, that's the most obvious example of one where you go ta, tick a ta, ta, tick a ta, ta, tick a ta. Um, I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about, by the way. I call myself a musician, but I have no theory. Um, I'm kind of just winging it. So, uh, yeah, that is a squandered opportunity. Fair enough. She had an issue with the rape or the near rape of Anita towards the end of the movie or and the end of the show. I mean, to me, it's not my argument to make. So why even make it? I... I I think to me what's interesting about that scene is that we have been made to sympathize with the Jets um, and just sort of feel for them. And like we're kind of going along with them in the story. And then we see them do something horrific to Anita, who, by the way, is like the if possibly the most appealing character in the whole piece. Like she's hilarious she's maternal she's sexy she's compassionate like and also like generally the sharks in their america song on the rooftop like seem to be having more fun it seems like a preferable place to be and that's probably a very white privileged ignorant thing to say but um i guess what i'm saying is i think the puerto rican characters come out looking a lot better than the white characters in this and i think uh in this piece you know skorsky kind of says the opposite says that uh that the puerto ricans are the villains and that we're meant to sympathize with the jets and i i just don't think that's true especially with that anita scene towards the end and rita moreno's performance in that is like staggeringly good like it's uh, all the way through like she's so good in that movie and again, for 1961, to have a Puerto Rican character played by a Puerto Rican actress with that's that relatable and covetable, I mean, just on, on every level, seems like for the time must have been a big step forward. Listen, 
nobody's listening to this. I don't know why I'm acting so self-conscious about saying the wrong thing here. Uh, I could be wrong about all of this, and it doesn't, in my opinion, does not matter in the first place. Look, this is not a hostage situation. If you're listening to this podcast, uh, stop listening if you're offended by what I'm saying. And I'm done saying it anyway, so let's move on. So the streets in the movie... Let's talk about the movie. They don't look real, right? They don't look like New York City streets, but they also don't look like a stage. They look like this sort of weird ghostly halfway point between real Manhattan West Side streets and like a dance stage. And I kind of like that about it. My uncle told me this is why he didn't like the movie, and I think he's wrong. What's up, Uncle Alan? Uh, Shout out. You're wrong about the streets in the movie. The dialogue is like really theatrical. It's like fast paced. You know, they keep coming. They're, they're in the windows. They're in the walls. You know, <laughs> I have no, I don't have any actual examples of this. Uh, the one that I tried to do was, do you get what I'm saying? When the jets are all talking to each other, like when they're, they're, they're brainstorming whether they should challenge the sharks to a rumble. Um, you say this, I say this, he says this, uh, it's fast paced. It's theatrical. Like I said, Russ Tamblin, I mean, I think one of the uh, challenges of the age of talking about toxic masculinity is that there needs to be, especially for boys growing up, that there needs to be some sort of affirmative concept of what non-toxic masculinity is. And even though Riff and Russ Tamblin as Riff is a racist <laughs> and uh, prone to violence, I feel like the image of him like hoisting himself over that pole and doing that acrobatic dancing at the gym and that sort of forward jutting of his head to summon the the, the, the jets. I think like that is a good image for boys of non-toxic masculinity. Could be wrong on that too. Now the women and the Puerto Rican community are mad at me. My favorite part, so just, these are just like a few moments in the movie that I just really like a whole lot. And um, I guess these are all movie-specific moments that maybe were not involved in the play necessarily. But so in the prologue, that long prologue that's danced only before anyone says a single word, other than like, beat it. <laughs> There's that little interaction between action and uh, I think it's Indio, one of the sharks, where uh, it's like half danced, half, half dance, half fighting. Uh, I think the music is like uh, I love that part. Um, John Aston from the fucking Addams Family as the Glad Hand. Just feel I feel so sad for him in that scene when he tries to do the get together dance and then no one wants to do it, and he says, oh, "Well, it won't hurt you to try." It's just, um, it's so sad. The psychedelic French doors, like with the colors, Maria's bedroom, pretty fucking cool. I figure out how to get those doors. I do have French doors in my new house here in Van Nuys. I moved into a few weeks ago. Um, I should color them, those primary colors, make them look like Maria's. Uh, and yeah, Rita Moreno's final monologue, just the fiery contempt on her face with the, I've got a message for your American buddy. So fucking good. So here's the worst thing about the movie and maybe the only bad thing. 
eh, let's say the worst thing. You know, there's this got flaws, whatever. The the worst thing about the movie, Richard Bamer is Tony. Let's face it. Uh, that guy's very bad. I know he was in Twin Peaks later, and weirdly so was Russ Tamblin. Like, I, I saw Twin Peaks way later in life, like maybe 10 years ago. And I was like, what the fuck? Riff and Tony are in this, and they're old? Um... But yeah, what I I can't understand. There was a weird trend in these movie musicals back then of casting an actor and having them lip sync to a singer, and you know it, it worked great with Audrey Hepburn. Although why why would you not cast Julie Andrews in My Fair Lady? Like uh, go for, that's that sucks. Um, and Natalie Wood uh, is obviously very good in in this uh even though maybe she shouldn't have been cast um i watched this the other night with my girlfriend with sort of fresh eyes because i think she'd seen it once like as a child but had not really absorbed she forgot that anybody died in it by the way like that was the funniest part like when when riff and bernardo died in the rumble she was like wait what so relatively fresh eyes and and i think that the seeing natalie wood in that first scene being like querida like she was like oh okay and obviously that would not uh, be tolerated today. I will never be allowed to play Che in Evita, which I realize is for the best. I'm not trying to go back to the old ways. <sighs> boy, oh boy. And the you know, funny thing is the kid in the new movie that plays Tony, I don't know his name. I know people seem to know his name. Ansel something. Let's take a look. Ansel Elgort. Same. He also sucks. Like, why is it a rule that we need to get a rat-faced goon who can't act or sing to play Tony? Maybe Tony is just not a well-written character. Um, but none of the characters are well-written. Uh, they're necessarily one-dimensional, as Sondheim says. Um, I think that it's time to talk about the new movie and uh, my contempt for it. Um, and I hate to close things out here with a with hate i'll try to say something else when i'm done talking about the new movie here's the thing i don't i've never i i hate it and i love it like there's i i did not have a bad time watching it like there are things that are good about it um i like how the jets and the sharks didn't look like well coiffed movie stars and they still looked like they looked sweaty and dirty like they'd been running around the streets all day which is uh something that survived in the new version and uh, the guy that played riff is great you know and i have a, there's a high bar there with the rest hamblin he was good I, I i liked that i liked how uh sort of uh egregious uh he looked <laughs> um i guess the, the 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 biggest thing with remaking west side story is why do it uh if you're not going to add depth to the puerto rican experience or if you're going to be Tony Kushner and Steven Spielberg and you're going to make a ham-fisted attempt at it. Um, like, all of that was dumb. And it's like it's like the Psycho, the shot-for-shot shot Psycho remake that Gus Van Sant made in the late 90s. It's just like, it's cosplay. It's like, why didn't Spielberg just watch the original movie and pretend that he made it himself? That's what I do when I... Uh, I'm singing along to songs in my car. I have little fantasies of like, hey, what if I wrote this song? 
and I performed it, everyone would think I was so fucking smart and talented. Like, well, just do that. You don't need your own version. We don't need a Spielberg version of this. Such hubris. Um, and here, I don't really like the films of Steven Spielberg. I swear to God, I'm not trying to be pretentious um, and say I don't like sci-fi stuff or popcorn movies. But hey, sorry. I don't like sci-fi stuff or popcorn movies. I just can't uh, bring myself to like them. I've tried. I've tried to get into those things um, because I sort of identify on a certain level as a nerd and the nerd community holds them very dear. And, uh, you know, Star Wars, for instance, I know that's not Steven Spielberg. But, like, I, I've tried to watch Star Wars, like, once every five years uh, to be like, maybe now I'll, I'll get it. And I just don't get it. And it just doesn't permeate, uh, permeate my brain. So, um, I do like Catch Me If You Can. That's my favorite Steven Spielberg film for whatever reason. I don't know why. Maybe it just came out at the right time for me. Whatever. Uh, my least favorite is The Post. Uh, hated The Post. Just hated The Post. But let's not talk about hate. Let's talk about what makes things good and what, by comparison, by contrast, makes this movie not good. So um, here's what Bernstein says about Arthur Lawrence's book um, the, for the show. He says he knew exactly how to limit his scenes so that they would set up a musical situation and he would not indulge himself in the luxuries of the expository scenes and delineation of character which would lead up to a song. In fact, he often encouraged us to take a scene he had written and musicalize it or take a germ of a scene and build a musical segment around it. And you can see that. Like, it's delicately crafted, right? Like, uh, his book, there's not an ounce of fat on it. It's uh, it's lean. It's exactly what needs to be said and nothing more. Tony Kushner's screenplay is bloated, self-righteous, and horrendously annoying. Um, he adds all of this shit that we don't need, which just shows nothing but contempt for his audience. There's this uh, history lesson on New York City's slum clearance. They have to make Bernardo a boxer. They have this scene where Tony and Maria are debating race class reductionism on the subway. That's just so fucking like that's what makes it like guess who's coming to dinner and that's what's going to make it unwatchable in five years. If it isn't already, frankly, um, just like shut up. I love Marita Moreno and I thought it was I, I thought it was cool that they put her in this um, having her sing somewhere. Like making it a wistful social commentary by a wizened old woman rather than what it's meant to be, which is just a, a song a song by star-crossed lovers that don't give a shit about anything but holding each other. Um, that's annoying and dumb. Um, here's what really bothered me. I mean, one of the many things that bothered me. So Officer Krupke and Lieutenant Shrank should not, cannot, and should not be redeemed in the story. And, like, it was subtle. I'm not saying that they, you know, they really redeemed Officer Krepke, but they really did humanize him. And it's like, what the fuck is that? Like, what's that supposed to mean? Like, it's just, it's, it's, it's corny. Like, they are supposed to be, like, so... 
especially Lieutenant Shrink. Like, Krepke is supposed to be just a dumber, meaner version of Shrink. And Shrink is a really dark fucking character. Like, and let me pull some examples. Like, he's, 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 if, if you, if you listen to the Cop See It Differently from uh, This American Life that came out a few years ago, like, he's a great embodiment of that, of like what it means to be a cop. Um, and it's like, so he hates, he hates the Jets. You were the Tin Horn immigrant scum you came from. He hates the city as if this neighborhood wasn't crummy enough. And he ultimately hates himself. Like he says, he says, you try keeping hooligans in line and see what it does to you. Like none of this shit ever changes. Like that's why when you listen to that, to what cops have to say now, like in that, this American life. And I know that sounds very, NPR had some interesting things to say about policing. Like uh, it's setting up a scenario where we're supposed to sympathize for Officer Krepke is elite, sentimental, Spielbergian baby food. And it pisses me off. Um, I have no writing experience or know-how, so I'm not going to pretend that I do. Um, but I do know that the original story of West Side Story did not require a Chekhovian gun in the first act. That gun, man. Like, what, what, if you're not familiar, if you haven't seen the new movie, there's, uh, you know, somebody brings a gun to the rumble. And the gun doesn't go off, but the gun like is dropped somewhere, and then an unseen hand picks up the gun. So, us in our seats in the movie theater, train seals that we are, are supposed to be like, oh, I, I think that gun is going to be a factor in the story later. Um, because to to Kushner and Spielberg, it's not interesting enough um, to just say, oh, Chino has a gun. And that, you know, the the moment when Chino, spoiler alert, Chino shoots Tony at the end, like it's surprising and inevitable. And we see it obviously a mile away when you do that bullshit where we, the gun is a factor. We see them get the gun and then the gun comes to the rumble and then, uh oh, someone has the gun. Oh, who has the gun? It's just, it's again, it's a contempt for your audience. And the rape of Anita scene. Again, it was, I guess it was too interesting and too uncomfortable that they had to make it didactic and condescending. They had to have Rita Moreno come in and use the word rape and call them rapists. And they, they had to have the, the Jets hang their heads in shame. You know, um, everybody knew what was happening, right? In the original, like in that scene, everybody knew what the implication of that scene was. I feel like the very end of the movie... And the way that it's different from the end of the original is indicative of what's wrong with it. Or it's symbolic, let's say, of what's wrong with it. God, I sound like an asshole in this podcast. So the end of the movie, Tony's dead. Boo-hoo. Let me say this really quick. Um, my dad told me he, he um, was in the Navy when this movie came out. And they, did a, they went to go see this or they had a screening of West Side Story in the Navy. And at the end, when uh, Tony's lying there dying and Maria starts singing uh, somewhere, acapella, there's a place for us. He said they started booing because they were tired of uh, songs. So anyway, at the end of the movie, um, the Jets go to pick up the body of their fallen comrade. And they have some trouble lifting him. 
and then a couple of the sharks move over and like help and then there's this moment of awkward um acknowledgement of what's going on and then they all sort of carry tony out of the playground and um it's a poignant moment because it's not hitting you over the head with it it's not there's no speech other than i guess maria's speech but no one's saying like maybe we were wrong to hate each other we'll help you do that um it's 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 uh it's subtle but it's like a glimmer of hope at the end of like a really 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 sad ending and um here's how they fucked that up in the new version so um if you if you haven't seen it um all the beats are mostly the same until when the jets pick up tony they have no problem lifting him right like they they get him up over their heads in one second he's up there and then the sharks walk over just fall into line and like hold the other side of tony and there's no moment of acknowledgement there's nothing like and then they weirdly like march his dead body around jets and sharks together holding up both sides and stay with me on this. I got a point. There's a. I got a point. Uh, this, this is a metaphor, folks. Um, so the Jets already had him up, right? So the so the the Sharks helping to carry Tony is symbolic, like it's not functional. And that, if you ask me, is not only what's wrong with this film, but it's what's wrong with liberalism now. Like, it's all about symbolism. They say, like, representation matters. And it does. Like, representation 100% matters. It's not the only thing that matters. Right? It's the, it's, it's similar to, like, Popeye's Chicken has a Black Lives Matter sign up, but they keep on paying poverty wages to their fry cooks. Or Nike uses Colin Kaepernick on a billboard, and they're using slave labor to make their fucking shoes. Like, it's... It's empty symbolism for symbolism's sake and that's why i think it like it's it's dumb but like that's why i think it matters that the sharks aren't really helping when they're lifting tony they're just seeming to help and um that's kind of what uh our leaders in the democratic party i'm afraid are are doing now they're seeming to help they're pretending to care and uh, that doesn't mean I'm going to vote for Trump or vote Republican. I'm not going to do any of that. Um, but anyway, didn't like that movie. So let's try to come in for a close here. I, I can't believe I, I've never done anything like this before. And I didn't think that I would talk for an hour. I think if I edit this down, it'll be less than an hour. Hopefully. Jesus Christ. I'm at an hour 13. Um. West Side Story, great musical, changed it all, landmark, before it's time. Um, is it the best musical of all time? Maybe. It's uh, very similar to Hamilton, and on some level to, I guess, Oklahoma, a decade prior to it, where it's, it's the announcement of a new way of telling a story. So, um, anyway... My Adderall is time released. It's not going to wear off. So I, I should probably just end this at a certain point. Just uh, abruptly end it and go do something else. Go get something to eat. Adderall does um, 
suppress your appetite. I saw a post somewhere on Twitter saying that um, the, the, <laughs> the way to have a successful podcast is to um, the more niche you can get. And so hopefully um, the niche combination of Sondheim and Adderall will work in my favor. Um, I do not expect to have an audience. I don't expect anyone to be listening this far into it. I can't imagine listening back to this myself. I wish I hadn't made so many mistakes and I didn't have to edit it and I could just shit this thing out. Maybe I'll do that more in the future. Um, because I'm not Mark Marin or Bill Burr where I can just sort of uh, speak extemporaneously by myself and make it interesting. But I tried. So um, thank you for listening if you did listen. And uh, tune in next week. We'll be talking about the musical Gypsy, which is... Um, I don't know like lengthwise if these are all going to be roughly the same length or if I'm just going to talk until I have nothing else to say. Like, for instance, when I get to Do I Hear a Waltz and Anyone Can Whistle, like I don't have a lot to say about those. So, I mean, I, I can't imagine I'll want to talk about those for more than 10 minutes. But uh, who knows? Could be. Who knows? This is Chris signing off for Sondheim on Adderall. See you next week. And until then, stop worrying where you're going. I don't have a... Um, I was, I was trying to quote, uh, what's a good sign off? Sondheim quotes uh, about goodbye. Sondheim quote, goodbye. There's probably like a really obvious one that, uh, ah, sometime, <laughs> sometimes people leave you halfway through a killer podcast. Others may deceive you. You decide what's good or if this podcast is good. You decide alone, but no one is alone except for you because the podcast is over and I'm going to go make lunch for myself. Okay, bye.